Shrink Wrap Radio number 828. Researcher and author Michael Jower on emotion and thick or thin personal boundaries. Today's episode is brought to you by MindspaceTV.com, where therapists will find an abundance of resources to support their work with clients. Check them out at www.MindspaceTV.com. And now it's time for Dr. Dave and Shrink Wrap Radio. You're on the couch again with Dr. Dave. And Shrink Wrap Radio is playing on again. Yeah. It's all in your head. It's all in your head. Shrink Shrinkwrap Radio, all the psychology you need to know and just enough to make it dangerous, it's all in your head. And now here's your host, Dr. Dave. My guest today, Michael Jower, a Washington, D.C.-based writer, speaker, and researcher. His focus is the nexus of personality development, body-mind, emotion, and spirituality. He's the author of three books, Sensitive Soul, Your Emotional Type, and The Spiritual Anatomy of Emotion. Now, here's the interview. Michael Jower, welcome to Shrinkwrap Radio. Well, Dr. David, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having well, me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you here. And uh, and when you reached out to me to talk about your work, and somebody I, guess, I think had suggested to you that this might be a good outlet uh, for your ideas, and uh, and then it turned out that actually you've been a, a long-time listener to the show, at least off and on. Do I have that right? Yes, that's absolutely correct. Yeah. And then as we uh, talked about, well, what are we going to talk about and so on, you uh, gave me a little bit about your background. And I was intrigued to learn that you are in Washington, D.C., and that you've uh, had a, a kind of, in addition to what our main focus is going to be here, which is your work on um, the interaction between our emotions and chronic illness. So we're going to be talking about that, this kind of the broad focus. But you have had a professional career in government as a consultant and uh, various kinds of roles. And I f am curious to ask you, because we've just had the, the January 6th uh, hearings, which I watched, and... And we had the January 6th event, uh, which uh, was a very upsetting event of, of, uh, of a kind of a revolt. So I want to ask you, what is the atmosphere there and what's been the impact upon you emotionally, since we're going to be talking about emotions? So what, t tell me about that. Right. Uh, January 6th is coming up, I guess, in about uh, two weeks. Um, yeah, right. Again, yes. Yeah, again. Uh, 
it, it was a revolt, and it was revolting, in my opinion. Yeah, um, mine too. Yeah, uh, uh, I think most of the country at, at this point uh, would agree, and that's a good thing. Um, you know, D.C. was um, was kind of under lockdown for a while um, in the weeks and even months after January 6th. Um, there was really a feeling, at least on Capitol Hill and in, in the district itself, uh, a large part of the district. Now I'm outside of D.C. I'm about 15 miles west. Um, but I did go downtown and, and there was a kind of a siege mentality. Mm. Um, it was an attack on the on the the people's house, you know, it was an attack on all of us and it felt that way. And so, you know, for weeks or even months, um, there were chain link fences up and, and all kinds of, uh, uh barriers, uh, physical and emotional, uh, which was very off putting. And that, that atmosphere has dissipated, uh, at this point, but it's, uh, it's left in effect. Yeah. Wow. Well, I would love to talk more about that because I think there's a, would be a lot to explore there. But I do want to get into the uh, the main focus of your work, which, as I mentioned, was uh, your work on the interaction between our emotions and chronic illness. And you've written one or more books with a Dr. Mark Mikosi. Am I saying his name right? Correct. Yes. Mark Mikosi. Yep. Yeah. And as you and I chatted, we discovered, and as I, I read the, uh, the acknowledgments in your book, in one of the books that you had written, uh, and uh, all kinds of people that we know in common, uh, either, either that I've met personally or I've known for a long time. or uh, So I was just amazed to see uh, how much overlap uh, there's been in our, in our careers, even though uh, even though we're on different sides of the country, and uh, and and you're not a professional psychologist, you're more of a researcher and um, and writer, and so you feel like a professional psychologist. We know a lot of the same people in psychology. So, how did you first become interested in this topic, anyway? Of uh, you know because I think for for a long time, at least in my world and the world of, of psychology, clinical psychology, the kinds of people that I interview, there's been a pretty long understanding I think now that mind and body are connected, and that uh, uh, that our emotional life can impact our bodies. But you've gotten into kind of a pretty specific slice of that. Uh, how did you first become interested in this topic? Well, probably like a lot of psychologists and psychiatrists uh, who are trained in, in those professions, um, uh, my, my growing up influenced it. You know, I noticed my parents were very distinctive personalities, and I think that's, that's the case in general. Opposites attract, and so you can't huh. help but, but notice those divergences. Um, and I think I became aware, Dr. Dave, at some point, probably in my mid to late teens, um, that I was um, holding emotion at a distance, that I wasn't feeling things as I should. Huh. Uh, and I went to therapy for that and got a lot better at it, but it's been a lifetime pursuit. Um, 
And that's why the uh, Ernest Hartman's uh, concept of thick and thin boundaries has, has uh, well, it grabbed me from the start when I became aware of that, because I realized that um, I was probably on the thicker side of the spectrum. It took longer for me to realize what I was feeling. And I could feel things very intensively, but sort of after the fact. Um, and that bothered me. It actually bothered me. And that's why I went into therapy. So I've gotten better at that over the years, although it's been a long slog. And my wife could tell you, I still don't register things as quickly as she does. She's right. much a, a more thin boundary person, but I've gotten thinner over the years through a lot of, of tough work, uh, challenging work. So that's on the personal side. I would say also uh, what influenced me is um, uh, kind of an interesting experience I had um, when I was in my, I guess my second job out of school was uh, working for an association uh, called the Building Owners and Managers Association, BOMA, which represents um, a commercial real estate professionals, the folks that, that own and manage office buildings. And I was, my assignment was working with the US EPA uh, to develop guidance, voluntary guidance for uh, building operators to prevent something called sick building syndrome. And um, I don't know if you've heard of that or your listeners have heard, but sick buildings, uh, sort of a, uh, a euphemism for just a, a structure or a situation where um, uh, more people are reporting um, illness that they attribute to, to something in the building that they feel better when they're not in the building and they, yeah. they are at some sort of, you know, disadvantage um, in the building. And um there's something called building-related illness. It's really kind of a catch-all phrase, and the EPA was trying to parse these things uh, and in cooperation with us and with other real estate groups, try to figure out, well, what sort of guidance could head off a so-called sick building and could help people not to feel ill in their workplace? And as I, uh, part of my assignment was to talk with these folks, interview them. Um, and interestingly, at the time, there were folks... Um, in commercial real estate and sort of observers who were looking at them and saying, well, you know, they're, it's all in their heads. It's quote, psychosomatic. Yep. They're making yes, it up. Right. They don't want to work. There's some problem in the workplace and they're attributing it to the building. And I thought, well, that's entirely possible. But in talking with them, I realized that uh, they had a few things in common with my spouse. Uh, <laughs> for example, uh, my, my wife has been asthmatic basically since she was born. And she reacts very quickly. For example, at that time, um, there was mold in a particular room in our house and, and we were using it as a joint office. And she was reacting to that. And I wasn't so much. I would, I would notice some stuffiness, sort of a smell that wasn't entirely pleasant. I knew we had to do something about it, but she couldn't breathe terribly well. She would start to wheeze. And that was at the same time I was interviewing these folks for this, this project with the EPA. And I thought, Perhaps some of them are sensitive to elements in the environment that are unseen and, you know, uh, yeah. cause of mold, the spores and so forth, the unseen, but nonetheless, a very intensive reaction. Perhaps it's not all in their heads. It's something physical as well. And it's psychosomatic in the sense that it's something with the body that's also affecting their, their mental perceptions and their emotional sense of what it's like to be at work. I have. Uh, I know that many people say that uh, neon lighting uh, is makes them feel ill in one way or another. 
Others have talked about the impact of air conditioning and on their sense of well-being. And I have a friend who uh, was sensitive to Bluetooth, so that if the if if Wi-Fi was uh, was Wi-Fi, I guess if the Wi-Fi router was on in her house that her mate used a lot, uh, she would know. And which is kind of amazing. We don't think of people being having that level of sensitivity, and and yet we are a piece with the animal world, and we know that uh, there's a, uh, we have some of the same. Some of the same uh, sensitivities, but not to the same degree, and and um, most of us aren't aware of the of our animal self to that degree. So this well, you, you is, this is fast. yeah. Go ahead. Your use of the word sensitivity pegs it, and and I contend that people um, differ to some extent in their level of sensitivity along a spectrum. Some people sure. are very highly reactive, yeah, and very aware of what what's causing it, or at least bothered by it, and other people, eh, not so much. Um, what you mentioned about uh, Bluetooth, for example, uh, there is a phenomenon, and I became aware of this around the same time I was working for BOMA and um, learning about the factors involved in, in indoor air quality. Uh, in fact, there were two kinds of conditions that were very curious and still are. One is called multiple chemical sensitivity, okay. where people seem to react trace um, elements in the atmosphere, um, perfumes, colognes, uh, solvents, cleaning agents, paints, uh, adhesives, pesticides. Yeah. <laughs> and most people don't, but some people apparently react quite viscerally to that and get bothered by it. Uh, and then uh, about uh, Bluetooth is uh, something called electrical sensitivity. And this is very well documented, especially in Germany and the Scandinavian countries, for whatever reason, uh, it's it's kind of a major topic or has been more on their radar and the UK as well. Uh, there have been studies commissioned by the governments in those countries to try to get a better handle on electrical sensitivity. But there are people who apparently, or at least they claim to be able to, to react to, uh, to lights, as you say, um, uh, computers, um, vacuum cleaners, Anything and everything electric bothers some people, and it's a yeah. big question as to why that is. Yeah, and it's um, I know I, I know at the university that I taught at for so many years, there was growing awareness of environmental kinds of factors, and that we were being called upon to to be emotionally compassionate and sensitive to the needs of students who had these kinds of complaints. And I, I blush to confess, you know, that it kind of stretches my boundaries to, uh, because it feels like, oh, you know, who, who, these people are such namby-pambies is, is probably, <laughs> I don't think I ever actually said that or articulated it as clearly as that, but but there's a kind of uh, irritation, I think. I suspect I'm not alone, you know, that... Uh, that no, that, you're not. And in fact, when, when I was starting to, to get familiar with these issues, um, that tack was, was very common and probably still is when you're talking about people. Uh, it's, um, uh, it's relatively rare, but in some sick building situations, you have... Uh, 
uh, a number of people that are complaining, but the logical or sort of the most immediate reaction most people have is what's wrong with you people? <laughs> Even yeah, the definition yeah. of a sick building is 20% of the building occupants are reacting to something. Well, that means 80% are not. Yeah. So, you know, majority rules, right? Majority is going to look down their nose and say, what the heck is wrong with you people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, gluten is another one, you know, people who are gluten insensitive. And uh, if you're not gluten insensitive, that can be kind of hard to understand, you know. And there, it seems something about today's world probably that, in fact, we are exposed to more environmental potentially toxic, toxic, irritating stimuli than uh, our ancestors were. And that's why it feels like, oh, there's a, there is a uh, epidemic of these kinds of picayune things going on. But I think it's because we've surrounded, we were living in artificial environments that in fact are extremely toxic. Yeah, there's a lot more to contend with in our society today and on the cusp of 2023 than there ever has been. People are paying a lot more attention to what's in their food yes. and whether that's good for them or not. Um, what I became fascinated with around this time, which was the um, mid to late 1990s, was the conjunction, at least the way I saw it and continue to see it, between environmental sensitivity and emotional sensitivity. Because when I was speaking with these folks who'd been affected, evidently, by poor indoor air quality, um, there was something, I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but they reminded me of my wife, Bonnie. They reminded me both in their reactivity to the environment and in their quickness to react, which was not a forte of mine. Like I say, I, I tend to be more um, someone who doesn't understand or doesn't realize what he's feeling until after the fact in many cases. And these folks seem to be immediate reactors. And so I was thinking, what is the connection, if any, between someone's emotional constitution and their physiology? Yeah. And that's yeah. really been the basis of much of my, my work over the years. Right. Earlier, you mentioned uh, Dr. Ernest Hartman, and that was another place where our where we had this overlap that was uh, I was surprised to discover because uh, I, for a long time, was a member of the International Association for the Study of Dreams, or IASD, wonderful organization. And uh, he was uh, very high in that hierarchy. I think he was, he was on the board, and, and I heard him speak a few times, but it was more about his research on nightmares, I think. So I, I never got to hear him talk about thick and thin boundaries, which uh, is something that, you, that you've been focusing on a lot and you attribute to him. So tell us about that, thick and thin boundaries. Right. Well, first I should tell you that it's a fellow Northern Californian uh, who, I don't know if you've heard of her name, Elaine Aaron, Dr. Elaine Aaron, A-R-O-N, she and her husband, uh, but she's kind of the lead in, in this endeavor, uh, her work on um, highly sensitive people. Her first book was called The Highly Sensitive Person, or HSP, uh, and she's worked on this probably a quarter century. Um, and it was talking to her 
uh, led me to Ernest Hartman because she and I were talking and she said, oh, you know, you'd be interested in this boundary concept of Dr. Hartman's. And I said, what, who? (laughs) So uh, I reached out to him uh, and um, uh, he was at, uh, unfortunately he's no longer with us, but at the time he was at Tufts University in I think Newton, Massachusetts is where he lived. And I called him up and um, was thrilled when he um, called me back a, a week or so later. And we, we corresponded and met um, over the uh, ensuing years. And you're right, he, um, he actually came to his theory of boundaries uh, through his study of dreams and nightmares. And what he discovered was folks who had nightmares were, in his parlance, thin boundary. In other words, sort of the the boundary or the threshold, you might say, between their uh, dream life and their waking consciousness was breached. In, in the case of a nightmare, you're literally woken up by emotions, you know, and images that are that are too tough to contain. They just literally wake you up and, and shock you awake. And he began to put pieces together to look at those folks who were prone to nightmares and other folks who slept blissfully and might not even remember what they dreamt. And that's, that's sort of the spectrum they ended up developing is the thin to thick boundary spectrum. So the thin people he called dream people, folks who were really remembered their dreams, uh, had vivid dreams. They dreamt in color. Uh, he called them dream people and the other people on the other side of the spectrum who rarely remembered their dreams or didn't remember dreaming in color. Um, he called them daytime people, I think. And that was his original conception. And then that turns into thin and thick boundaries. Now, you know, for years I taught a class on dreams, uh, undergraduate class. And uh, we did, we broke up into small groups. And uh, and a lot of that was influenced by uh, people, other people who were involved in IASD and so on. So I certainly had that experience of some people are great dreamers. I'm somewhere in the middle, I would say. Uh, one of the things I learned is that if you're paying attention to, to, if you're doing things that are paying attention to your inner world, like journaling or uh, meditating or something like that, I think the likelihood of dream recall seems to go up and to be somewhat correlated with that. But I definitely would, uh, I would have students, you know, for whom this was all like, kind of like mumbo jumbo, and they somehow they had stumbled into this class, and now they had to put up with these people who were all excited and interested in their dreams. And then there were these other people who it seemed like every night had fantastic Jungian type dreams, you know, of of marvelous. <laughs> richly textured landscapes and so on and the dreams would go on and on <laughs> and uh, so the real there really is a whole continuum and let me hasten to say here that either the very last interview that I did the most recent podcast or maybe it was two back I'm not sure was all about the highly sensitive person and the these people who've created a website that's devoted to catering to the highly sensitive person. So this kind of event has me always thinking about uh, synchronicity. I can't get away from it because I don't think you contacted me because of that interview that I had. Did you? I don't think so. No, I'm, I'm 
thrilled to hear of it, and I have to go back, back a couple of weeks and see what I was missing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so to me, this it's just uh, it's amazing because sometimes the interviews will kind of go in in waves of topically and be related without any conscious intent on my part to say, okay, now I'm going to do a group of interviews on X or Y. So uh, welcome. <laughs> welcome from the, from the wider universe that, uh, <laughs> that, that brings things in. So where are we now? Uh, also, the um, I get the feeling that uh, that what you're talking about also borders on uh, a, a, a hot topic, I think, within psychology, which is psychological flexibility as a major personality variable. Is there some overlap there? Are you familiar with that concept? Uh, is that synonymous with resilience or close to well, it? Well, it's very close to it, yeah. Yeah, it, it, I guess in some ways, yeah, it probably comes out of that same literature, maybe. I'm, I'm just uh, pausing for a moment about that. But several major theorists have come up independently equating psychological flexibility with mental health. Yes, yes. Um, there is quite a bit of overlap, and... Uh, a moment ago, you used the word continuum, you know, to, to look at people along a continuum. So you have yeah. extremely thin boundary people. You have people who are relatively thin boundary, people right in the middle of the spectrum, people who are somewhat thick boundary and extremely thick boundary, right? And right. Um, I think when it comes to resilience, one important element, at least from my vantage point, and I think if, if Ernest Hartman were here, he would agree, is to see people, yourself and everybody else, as being along a continuum. So that, yeah, you can have extremes and sort of scratch your head and go, well, why is that person that way? Uh, but also apply that to yourself. Well, where am I on this continuum? And right. is the necessarily this, this is the part of the continuum that I want to be on, that I want to be at? And... Uh, when I do book talks, people often ask, well, uh, I test more thick than thin. I'd like to be thinner. And other people say, well, I test more thick than thin. I'd like, um, I'm sorry, vice versa. I test uh, more thin than thick. I'd like to be thicker. So people, it seems, um, are rarely uh, happy 100% with where they are. Uh -huh. And they want uh -huh. to learn how to uh, cultivate some of the other tendencies that often their partners have more than they do. And sometimes maybe this is to assuage their partners to have a happier relationship. Um, but I think this, it, it really boils down to flexibility and flexibility would be the linchpin of resilience. So if you know yeah. where you are, you respect that uh, there are other people um, on other sides of you on that spectrum and that everybody is in flux, uh, probably very few of us are hundred percent thrilled with where we're at and of course, life is movement anyway, right? Life, life by definition, if something is dead, it's it's not moving. There's no yeah. no reactivity there. So we're always trying to learn and grow and um, be maybe a little bit different, a little bit better in, in at life. And I, I think that's maybe getting to what you're talking about. 
Well, also, what I'm hearing and what you're saying is that uh, there really isn't a value judgment uh, that uh, to be all on the thick side or all of the thin side is 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 the best way to be, but rather that they're both important through different ways of being uh, along a spectrum, ways of, of being in the world. And Absolutely uh, right. And, and yeah. Hartman actually has um, his boundary questionnaire, um, when you score it, there are 145 items. Wow. And they break down into a dozen different categories. So I don't mean to suggest that it's monolithic, that you're, you know, you're either here or you're there. Uh, a person's overall score is going to be a reflection of where they are thick and thin in 12 subcategories. And then it just sort of grades up into an overall score. So uh, none of us is you know, completely one or the other. And when I think of resilience, I think of us, like you say, being, non, uh, being less judgmental about other people, but also less judgmental about ourselves. Yes, we're definitely. very complex amalgams. Uh, at any given moment, and that changes throughout our life. I mean, um, when you're in your you know 30s, you're different than you are now. When I was in my 20s, different than I am now, different than we're going to be uh, five years from now or even two weeks from now. Yeah, yeah, and that for me also dovetails with uh, meditation, the whole world of mindfulness meditation, which is about setting judgment aside and and accepting the complex the complexity of our mental and emotional experiences and instead of having a huge judgment about it observe it accept it and let it go and then see what comes up next that's so let's talk about the connection to chronic illness because uh and you sent me a couple of recent papers that had come out referring to the to some rather unexpected places where where thick or thin boundaries or other personality typology ideas are related to to the uh, prevalence or lack of it of certain diseases for example the there's so much that we're not consciously aware of our our gut our bowel you know a lot of research now that shows that the the biome is so totally complex and is related to our emotional life and so on. So you're the expert here. I want you to talk about that. Well, it's it's a theory, and it's a theory that Dr. Makosi and I have, have propounded. Um, I believe it holds up to scrutiny. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's based on the idea of thick and thin boundaries, that in some people— um, they're, they're more highly reactive. They're more aware of what they're feeling, uh, and in other people, much less so. Uh, feelings have a very definite strength. There's an energy to them. Um, the word emotion conveys the, uh, the quality of movement of feelings. You can't really pin them down. They're constantly uh, in flux. Um, that doesn't mean, however, that uh, you can feel a feeling and... Um, and then it's necessarily gone. You may ruminate on things. Something may stick with you. Um, it may become a preoccupation, a major concern. And what we talk about in, in uh, our second book, which is called Your Emotional Type, is chronic health conditions. 
And these are conditions that um, we propose are more about uh, the mind-body relationship than about any particular bug or any particular germ or, uh, or gene. So that um, the conditions that we're talking about, it could be hypertension, migraine, ulcer, chronic fatigue, chronic pain, um, asthma, allergies, uh, psoriasis, um, all of these different conditions, uh, we argue, are a lot about uh, how a person unconsciously handles feelings and the energy of feelings, and particularly difficult feelings that may not be immediately apparent even to a thin boundary person can manifest uh, in these kinds of conditions. So what we took a look at was we looked at something called the, uh, uh, it's called the HPA axis. The um, you would you would probably know the abbreviation better. Um, the um, hypothalamus has a has a role in it. Hypothalamus pituitary axis HPA axis, uh-huh. and we looked to see how reactive in certain kinds of conditions. We looked at serotonin as sort of a a marker for the activity of the HPA axis, and so we kind of inferred where people would be on the boundary spectrum if they manifested this particular kind of condition or that particular kind of condition. And so we organized these, we call them the uh, the dozen discomforts, um, into grouping so that some seem to be more prevalent uh, as, as thin boundary conditions, some are more prevalent as thick boundary conditions. And then from there, uh, Mark McCosey uh, lent his uh, exceptional expertise which is in complementary and alternative medicine. Now it's evolved to be called, I guess, complementary and integrative medicine. Uh, But what kinds of uh, therapies um, would be beneficial, most beneficial for folks who um, uh, are affected by these chronic health conditions? So the book, Your Emotional Type, is really kind of a, a menu of therapies based on your boundary type and the kinds of conditions you might be most susceptible to because they are more than a particular germ um, or a particular um, identifiable cause. It's not COVID. uh, It's not the common cold. Um, We're talking about more complex conditions that really have to do with what's happening within. And our contention is how people handle the energy of feelings. I'm struck by the term the seven discomforts. Uh, can you remember them off the top of your head? What are the seven uh, discomforts? It's uh, it's the dozen discomforts. Oh, the dozen, we, I'm sorry. You're, you're right on the seven because we identified what we call the super seven treatments, the ah, complementary okay. and alternative or integrative treatments. Oh, I want to hear about that, those that too. Have the most evidence behind them, or at least did. Uh, about uh, 10 or 11 years ago when we when we released this book. But the, the 12, um, uh, the dozen discomforts are um, asthma, allergies, chronic fatigue, depression, fibromyalgia, hypertension, irritable bowel syndrome, migraine, PTSD, uh, psoriasis, and, uh, and eczema together, uh, rheumatoid arthritis and ulcer. Okay, I'm sure there's something that binds those together. Well, and I guess that's kind of what you're getting at. Uh, 
that, that somehow they're tied into how we deal with our emotions and what are that we differ in terms of emotional style, which is probably unconscious. We probably each have an unconscious emotional style, if you will. Is that a good word, that's, style? That's exactly right. That's okay. exactly right. There's a great anecdote in the book. There's a, um, a psychiatrist in Australia, if I'm remembering, or maybe New Zealand, who I was reading one of his papers, and he had a couple, a married couple in for, for, for therapy, and um, she was paralyzed from the waist down. She had been in an auto accident or something. She was paralyzed and they were having a very difficult conversation about their sex life. And uh, she was saying, you know, I want to have as much of a sex life as we can. And you're not treating me like a full human being. You're treated me like, treating me like damaged goods. And the husband was complaining that, you know, it took so much of his energy to look after her and he barely had energy to, to have any physical relations. And it was a very contentious, very difficult, you know, fraught conversation. Yeah. And um, the, uh, the writer of this paper, Stephen Appel, it just dawns on me, Stephen Appel. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but it was, I think it's A-P-P-E-E-L, maybe, something like that. Yeah. He said, I took all of this in. You know, and it was his job to, to, to try to help them navigate these shoals. And he said, it was after the session was over, I, had, I felt like I had been just hit with a ton of bricks and I got a migraine for my troubles. And so here's a guy who's conversant with feelings. That's his, that's his stock and trade, right, is to help yeah. people when they come into treatment, help them parse these things. But it was such a, a, a difficult conversation. You know, the stakes are incredibly high. He didn't react to it immediately, but afterwards he said he got a migraine. And the way Dr. Mikosi and I look at this, migraine is indicative of a thin boundary personality where nonetheless the energy of that feeling or feelings goes underground. And it's sort of dissociated. And the power of the dissociated feeling manifests in the migraine. Whereas somebody else who maybe is constitutionally thicker boundary wouldn't have a migraine, but would get an ulcer later on. Um, so, or would deal with, uh, with uh, chronic fatigue, yeah. let's say. So that's, that's our, our contention and, and there is evidence for it. And that's the kind of thing that we cite as, an, as evidence. It's anecdotal, but um, there's a lot of anecdotal evidence as well as, as the um, HPA activation that we, we use to sort of figure out which conditions reflect which boundary type. Yeah, so tell us about the seven treatments that emerged, at least at that time, uh, as best suited to deal with these kinds of things. And of course, I think of, well, I believe Dr. Hartman was, a, was trained as a psychoanalyst. Am, am I right about that? Yes, in fact, his father... You may know his father, Franz Hartmann, was a disciple of Freud. He was in Freud's circle uh -huh. way back when. Wow. Uh, so, yeah, he comes from that, that, uh, that tradition. Okay, so tell us, tell me about the seven 
the seven approaches, but I have to believe that some form of depth psychology is going to be important, whether it's psychoanalysis or something else. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Jungian uh, psychology before um, and synchronicities and so forth, and I I became uh, highly interested, thoroughly interested in depth psychology, James Hillman uh, and, um, and Jung, um, probably around the same time as I was getting interested in all this other stuff in the mid-90s, but yeah. I've actually spoken to the Jung Society of D.C. Uh, I think three times at this point, and that's, anyway, we can get into that, but the, um, the super seven uh, of therapies are acupuncture, mm. hypnosis, biofeedback, meditation, yoga, guided imagery, and relaxation techniques. That's the seven. And I've been involved with all of those in on the course of my training and, and personal experience. So that's, yay. <laughs> it, it covers a good part of the waterfront, maybe yeah, most of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We also, by the way, we have an appendix in our book, Your Emotional Type, um, where we, I, I guess it's actually the last chapter, is called Pushing Boundaries. And, and we talk about um, energetic therapies, bioenergetics, uh, Reiki, things like that, Right. Uh, which therapies. sort of came to our attention as we were finishing up the book. We didn't delve into them, but we sort of, it's, a, it's, a, it's the last chapter and sort of a PS. Uh, and so that was where we learned a few things in getting the book together. Yeah, I would think that, that the whole suite of body therapies would be really important for this discussion. Yeah, therapeutic touch and, and all of that. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, they, they revolve around concepts of energy. Um, people involved in those kinds of therapies consider themselves very often um, energy healers, which sounds kind of esoteric, but if you think that uh, emotion, if you conceive of emotion, of, of, of emotion as, as energetic, then there's definitely physiology to it. I never, yeah, I never made that that connection before. The way you broke down the word emotion as having motion in it—that's never occurred to me before. It seems well, so the obvious. Latin, um, <laughs> it, well, I, I'm I'm big on uh, etymology, and I always okay. like looking up. Uh, yeah. Me and George Carlin. I used to like George Carlin a lot because he would focus <laughs> right. on words and what they mean and what they signify <laughs> and the sound of words and so forth. And that always stuck with me. And um, one of the first things I did before I started to write anything was to look up the definition uh, and the root of emotion. And the Latin um, verb is emover or emovere, I think, which means to move from or to move out of. And I think that the, uh, the root of words can be very instructive. Yes. They go back, you know, thousands of years, but they give you some sense of, of what the original meaning of the word was, which we may or may not recognize today. And I do believe that the motion of emotion was recognized early on. How is how's a listener to assess, you talked about a test of thin and thick boundary. How, how is a listener or a viewer of this interview to proceed from here to have some sense of... Uh, what chronic illness they either already have 
or, or, or need to guard against and relate that to what kind of treatment they should be seeking? So our uh, website um, has all of that information, and it's uh, youremotionaltype.com. And thanks to Hartman, uh, he not only developed the boundary questionnaire, which is 145 items, but he recognized there was a need for a, a simpler way in to the concept of boundaries and, and for helping people to peg where they are approximately on the boundary spectrum. So there's an 18 question short form of the boundary questionnaire, which if folks come to youremotionaltype.com, they'll see it immediately. And we've set it up so that uh, someone can go through the 18 questions and it's scored automatically. And that'll lead them to pages about, well, what does this mean? What kinds of chronic conditions might you be susceptible to? What does this mean about your emotional style, as you said, your sort of unconscious predilection for reacting? It's not yeah. something anybody really has total control over, but you become better, you know, better aware of it by virtue of taking the quiz. That's a great resource uh, to, to learn about. I'm definitely going to put that in, in the show notes so that people can, uh, <coughs> can find that and go there. Um, we're getting to be yeah, we sure. We really on... mean for the site to be pragmatically helpful for folks. It's, yeah. you know, we've talked a lot about the, the boundaries concept and what it entails, but ultimately our goal with uh, this particular book and website is to help people practically choose a kind of therapy that's not going to have downsides. It's not like taking particular drugs or having surgery. There are very few downsides with the super seven therapies. And, um, we're trying to align those therapies with with boundary type and with, con, with type of chronic condition. Yeah. I'm just looking at some of the notes that you sent me of possible things that we could talk about. And uh, one that kind of sounds interesting to me, why is disgust an especially useful indicator of boundary function? So that's interesting, disgust, yeah. Yes, um, I became aware of disgust, not through Hartman's work, but through the work of a guy named Jonathan Haidt, H-A-I-D-T. Oh, yeah, I've, inter I've interviewed him, yeah. He's a fascinating person. Yes. I got a chance to talk with him briefly. I've heard him speak, and um, he's at NYU, and um, he's very interested in, um, in, in, in people's political predilections and, and why they might lean left or lean right or be somewhere in the center. And um, he wrote about disgust, and I think others have as well. Disgust is a, is a reflex that all human beings have uh, to keep uh, stuff that's poisonous and, and harmful to us out of our systems. Yeah. Uh, so... Um, it, it, it's it's physiological, it's biological, but it's also conceptual because we can be disgusted by uh, certain fashion trends or art or music or, or political opinion. People say, oh, that disgusts me. I don't want to traffic with that. And that's what Jonathan Haidt started to look at. And it turns out that uh, people who ha are more readily disgusted uh, tend to be on the conservative side politically. Uh, and I would explain this uh, 
through the boundary, the prism of boundaries as uh, thick or thin, that, that people will wall themselves off from, from that which is disgusting more readily if they're thick boundary. If they're thinner boundary, they're more open to experience. That was something else that Hartman discovered, he and his colleagues. There's, there's a clear connection between um, thin boundaries and, and openness to experience. And if you're more open to experience, you're less likely to say, blah, I don't want to see or hear or know from that. Uh, I might be disgusted initially, but I might also find it intriguing. I might want to check it out a little bit and not write it off completely. So that's why I, I believe that disgust is, is a pretty good barometer, uh, if you have to pick one, uh, of, of where somebody is on the thick to thin boundary spectrum. If, if they are completely, totally disgusted genuinely by it, uh, they're probably more thick boundary. And if they're mm, curious about it, they're, they're probably more thin boundary. You, you mentioned uh, the political spectrum, which brings me back to your day job. <laughs> because I remember when we were first sending email back and forth and uh, I asked you to generate some topic ideas for me since uh, I hadn't read your book at that point. And, and, uh, and you said, well, I'll... I'll Right now, I'm pretty busy with my day job, but when I can get around to it, I'll, I'll send you those those bullet points. And uh, that intrigued me. Your day job? You mean you have a day job <laughs> over and above all this other work that you're doing on personality and chronic disease and book writing? And and uh, so I want to go back there. Tell us more about your day job. What are You mentioned the EPA, the... Um, uh, the Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, who else have you worked for? What what other kind of work have you done with the government? And how do these well, I, ideas I, help you in in working with? Because you must see a lot of demonstration of them within the government and its functioning yeah, and malfunctioning. It's a great, it's a great question, Doctor Dave. Um, I've worked for the government and I've worked with the government. So uh, when I was representing an association like the Building Owners and Managers Association, you know, I, I was working with the EPA, um, which I did for a number of years. But I've also worked directly for the federal government. I was with an agency called the General Services Administration, uh, which takes care of, of civilian buildings. They own uh, a lot of buildings. They're, they're probably the they are the biggest um, uh, owner of, of square footage in the, in the country. Huh. And probably they lease more space than anybody else uh, as well. So um, I continued my, uh, my interest, my, my vocation in, in uh, looking at people as building occupants when I was with the GSA. And we continued working on indoor air quality um, and energy efficiency and workplace productivity, those kinds of things with the GSA. But since then, I've, I've represented organizations and I've been a consultant. These days, uh, I work as a consultant uh, for a, a, a company that uh, serves the, uh, the VA. And we try to help the VA to be better organized. But I think that the experience that's most informed uh, my uh, interests in, in the writing and the speaking was not only BOMA, but it was, um, I was five years uh, representing the um, naturopathic profession, 
which uh, naturopathic doctors are integrative physicians. Uh, right. And for example, they, they believe first and foremost, food is medicine. That's, that's their basic platform, their fundamental, um, the way they approach patients. And they look at um, what's causing the illness and uh, try to get to know the patient holistically as opposed to saying, well, you're presenting these symptoms or that symptoms and, uh, and, and that's, that's the, the prescription, prescription I'm going to write is based on that particular symptom you're presenting. They try to get a sense for the whole person. And well, that, was, directly dovetails, that directly dovetails with the research and writing that you've been doing, right? Well, I didn't necessarily know that it was going to. I, <laughs> I knew that it reflected pretty well, but it also um, it pushed me a little further because for five years that was my day job, and I was re representing the naturopathic profession on Capitol Hill and before the FDA and other agencies. Um so it, but it helped me to understand um, how naturopathic doctors are trained and their philosophy, and that certainly has carried over to my subsequent work. So was that an accident, or did you design to move in that direction because I, you had I wanted to? I wanted to work on behalf of an integrative uh, health organization because of the work Mark McCosey and I had done. With your, your emotional type, I became uh -huh. familiar with many more organizations uh, that um, advanced these kinds of therapies. So I just <laughs> sort of put my toe in the water and and tried to latch on to one of those organizations. And I was fortunate that the uh, um, it's called the uh, American Association of, of Naturopathic Physicians (AANP) brought me on board, and I believe I did some good work for them over about five years. That's that's just great. What about the American Psychological Association or the American Psychiatric Association? Have you had any call to interface with either of those? Um, many of the people I've um, queried over the years and, and corresponded with and uh, tried to talk to have been APA members for a start. Uh, folks like Stan Krippner, yeah, um, good friend. Mm -hmm. uh, we were talking about before um, Eileen Serlin yeah. uh, with the APA. Um, Stan actually invited me to be on a panel um, in 2011, I think it was. Uh, and I was out in San Diego uh, speaking at an a APA uh, conference, I think their annual meeting. There's, there's another group also that sort of parallels APA. I haven't dealt too much with the American Psychiatric Association, but there's another one, and the abbreviation isn't coming to me. Um, uh, maybe after the show, uh, it'll dawn on me. Yeah. Um, they, they've written, their members have written a lot about um, uh, the person as um, a psychosomatic individual, the combination of psyche and soma. Yeah. And it's a little more progressive than the APA in that way. Um, I just can't think of who they are, but I've yeah, trafficked a yeah. little bit with their members as well. There are so many APS, I think it's called the American Psychological Society, APS. Yeah, there is that. I think that's them. Uh-huh. Well, this has been fascinating, Michael, um, and I really applaud the uh, 
the work that you've been doing on yourself, you know, your your original call to this was kind of a sensitivity to your own inner world and a sense of wanting to move within that space. And then that you've parallel to all of that, that you've been moving in the world of government and and that's carried you to all of these really fascinating directions. And then you've written, you've done some significant collaboration uh, with professionals and 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 written professionally. So um, you're a wonderfully well integrated guy, if I say so. <laughs> and uh, well, I've, I've and gotten I, that way. I've become that uh, way um, through this work and. So it's it's an avocation in the best sense, and my wife would be pleased to tell you that I I definitely know much faster these days what I'm feeling, and what the prompts are than I ever have before, and I, that's that's a really good progression for me. Well, I want to thank you for being my guest today on Shrink Wrap Radio. It's a real pleasure, Doctor Dave. Thank you for having me, and thanks for the conversation, the interchange. It was a real joy to speak with today's guest, Michael Jauer. While not formally trained in psychology, he has amassed considerable expertise through personal scholarship, personal psychotherapy, and collaboration with highly credentialed professionals in the field. He's also written or co-authored a number of successful books on the interface of personality and health. In his writing, he draws upon evidence that unconscious personality factors such as repressed emotions and unresolved past trauma can contribute to the development of chronic illnesses. These unconscious factors can affect an individual's behavior, coping mechanisms, and overall health. For example, repressing negative emotions, such as anger or sadness, can lead to an imbalance in the body's stress response system, which can weaken the immune system and increase the risk of chronic illnesses. Similarly, unresolved past trauma can lead to chronic stress, which can also weaken the immune system and increase the risk of chronic illnesses. Additionally, unconscious personality factors can impact an individual's behavior and coping mechanisms such as their diet and exercise habits, which can also affect their overall health. For example, an individual who represses their emotions may cope with stress by overeating or not taking care of their physical health, which can increase their risk for developing chronic illnesses. Jauer's work and that of others underscores the importance of unconscious personality factors as part of a holistic approach to managing and preventing chronic illnesses. This may involve therapy or other forms of self-care to help individuals better understand and cope with their emotions and resolve any past trauma. In fact, he and co-author Dr. Mark Mikosi have outlined what they term, quotes, the dozen discomforts, close quote, which include such conditions as ulcers, migraine headaches, irritable bowel syndrome, 
and others, which you can hear listed in our interview. And they go beyond that to list, quote, the super seven complementary medicine approaches, which have been shown to be successful in treating the dozen discomforts. The super seven treatment approaches, which you can hear spelled out in our interview, include such things as hypnosis, guided visualization, progressive relaxation, and so on. Jauer and his collaborators have been heavily influenced by the thinking of psychoanalyst Ernest Hartman, MD, who developed notions about the role of boundaries in his study of nightmares. This is fascinating stuff for me because of my own extensive interest in and university teaching about dreams for many years. Hartman found that nightmare sufferers tend to be people with thick personal boundaries. Thick boundaries would characterize a certain amount of rigidity or fixed notions about morality and so on. Thus, quotes, wicked dream content would be particularly threatening and cause anxiety. Jauer, who in his day job has worked in and with the federal government for 35 years or more, shared with me that the thick and thin boundary model also provides a good lens for understanding political biases and so on. Jauer is not judgmental about people who are either thick or thin boundary-wise. In fact, he sees this phenomenon as very much related to sensitivity and that sensitivity is distributed along a spectrum. Essentially, we are speaking about personality types or styles that are largely unconscious. Now, you might be wondering where you fall in terms of this typology. Fortunately, Jauer and his colleagues have provided online self-discovery tools on their website, www.youremotionalitytype.com. You'll find that site is a gateway to their work and thinking. Thanks so much to my guest and new friend, Michael Jauer. Hello, David. This is Gloria Ullman from Adelaide in South Australia, and I'm coming out. Now, recently I made an extraordinary donation, or I prefer to call it a contribution, in addition to the one I usually make around December each year and asked you not to mention it. But I've had second thoughts and perhaps it just might inspire somebody somewhere, some way. So I'll leave it up to you whether or not you choose to play it. But the circumstances were that I recently had to have my 13 and a half year old Lilac Point Siamese cat, Chrissy, put down. And I had her cremated by the Animal Welfare League and obtained an urn with a tea light candle holder in the top of it and set up a shrine on her favourite elevated platform bed with a photograph and assorted artefacts of hers. And one day I lit the candle and I was just watching it and different things were going through my mind and I thought I would really like to do something to commemorate her in a more concrete way. So I thought about the donation to the Animal Welfare League, but as I've been doing that for a long time anyway, it really didn't feel any different. And what I thought of then was the fact that she was and 
still is and probably will be for a long time, the most frequent figure other than myself in my dreams. And that's when I got the bright idea of making a donation to the podcast in her memory. Now I say that she was part human but what she really represented to me was my inner child and in loving her in the way that I did and the very close bond that we had, I was able to heal a lot of the deficiencies in my own internal mother-child relationship. I'd never had children of my own by choice and animals and particularly cats substitute children for me but it's only in the time that I've had Chrissy that I really began to fully appreciate the psychological benefits of companion animals. I was also inspired to make the recording by re-listening to the Frances Weller interview that you did number 279 on grief ritual and the soul of the world. You mentioned it recently in an email that you read from Oscar, I think it was, in Sweden, where he said that it was one of his favourites. And I remembered that it had a big impact on me when I listened to it. So I went back and re-listened to it. So that gave me the impetus to go ahead and make this recording. So thank you so much, David, for all, all the work you do. And I really, really hope that you get the support that you need And it's not just for you. This is a gift to the world. Thank you. I know this is a bit long, but I just re-listened to it before sending it and want to add another little bit. And that is that I said thank you, David, for the work you do. But really what I want to say is thank you for the person you are because that has been as much of an inspiration as the actual education that I've got through the podcast And in particular, the encouragement you have given me to do my dream blog. It was a dream that I had with you in it that really motivated me to do the blog. And I recently hit a wall with it and and you noticed and emailed me to encourage me to keep it up. So I have actually done that now and intend to keep on going with it. And I really regard it as my equivalent of Jung's Red Book. So thank you once again, David, finally. Thank you, Gloria Ullman, there in Adelaide. It's so good to hear your voice again and to experience the strength of your practice. Of course, I feel so honored that you chose your support for Shrinkwrap Radio as a way to honor the passing of your beloved cat. Thanks for allowing me to use this recording, too, to inspire others to support my work. And, of course, thank you to all you other monthly supporters. It always is so good to see your names as I scroll through the list of donors as I prepare each podcast. Once again, time to shrink-wrap it up. Thanks to my guest, Michael Jower, someone who really practices what he preaches and writes about. Thank you for your service to and with the U.S. federal government there in Washington, D.C., where you live and have worked for many years. It makes me feel good to have such a positive influencer as yourself there. And thank you for sharing with us your work on thick and thin personal boundaries. 
Next week, my guest will be Dr. Mike Denninger, who will be speaking about his work with a new eye movement therapy for resolving personal trauma. I hope you'll join us then. Meanwhile, this is Dr. Dave reminding you to be kind to yourselves, others, and our precious earth. You've been shrink-wrapped by Dr. Dave. All the psychology you need to know, and just enough to make you dangerous.